Have you ever had a conversation with someone where it seemed like they were saying the right things, but they didn't totally understand their meaning? Like the best is when it happens with children. A few years ago, I was helping one of my little girls use the restroom and I took her in there. She was about two or so at the time. And, I, and I'm, I'm helping her get ready to go potty. And she says to me, she says, Daddy, I think I need some privacy. I say, okay, baby. So I begin to leave the bathroom to give her her privacy. And then she begins screaming at me, no, Daddy, where are you going? And I said, well, I'm giving you your privacy. So I'm leaving and you can call me when you need my help and I'll come back. And she said, no, no, Daddy, I want you to stay here with me, but I do need some privacy. And so I looked at my little girl and I said, baby, do you, do you know what privacy is? And she said, yeah, privacy is when you need to go number one and number two at the same time. And so I looked at my little girl and I said, baby, yes, you need privacy in these certain potty circumstances, but that's not exactly what privacy means. She was saying the right words, but she was misunderstanding their meaning. The truth is this happens to us all the time. Like this isn't something that's just specific to children and privacy. This is something that we can all experience. In fact, one of the number one ways I believe it happens is actually in our relationship with Jesus. If you've spent any time or you've been around the church for a long time, we get really quick and really good at knowing the right things to say, but misunderstanding the meaning. Because when we look at our life, that isn't necessarily the things that we know to say don't actually play out in our life. And the reason why I know this is because I've experienced it. So I grew up in a Christian home. I don't ever remember a time in my life where I wasn't taught to love Jesus. It's just what we did. We loved Jesus. We loved the Seahawks. We loved each other. And we told other people about Jesus. That's what was normative in my home. See, my dad was the director of evangelism for the state of Missouri. And he would go around to all these different Baptist churches and he would preach a message as he would go around to different Baptist churches in the state of Missouri as a director of evangelism. One night he was going to a little church in the town called Versailles, First Baptist Church, Versailles, Missouri. And that night at the children's service, I heard them teach a message about Jesus. And that night I decided to make a profession of faith in Christ, professing that Jesus was Christ. And I decided to make this profession of faith public. But if I'm honest, this profession that I made in Christ wasn't really about Jesus. It was much more about me. You see, I didn't want to go to hell. I mean, who does? Not this guy. I, I made a decision because I didn't want to go to hell because what you got to understand is before I got there that night, my 14-year-old brother had been giving me a hard time telling me, Matt, if you're not a Christian, you're going to hell. And I'm, I said, I am a Christian. He said, no, you're not a Christian. And until you're a Christian, you're gonna go to hell when you die. And so I argued with him the best that I could, but he, he made it clear that if I did not become a Christian, then I was going to go to hell when I died. And so that night, I thought I'd just go ahead and take care of that. When we were at First Baptist Church for Sales, I'd go ahead and just you know, punch my ticket to heaven and make sure that one day when I died, I would not be going to hell, I'd be going to heaven. And so honestly though, breaking that down, I didn't have in mind the things of God, I had in mind the things of man. I was saying all the right words, doing the right things, but not understanding their meaning. 
In fact, when my dad asked me all the right questions that you should walk through with a child, I knew all the right answers, but I had misunderstood what it meant to be saved and misunderstood really, more importantly, what my confession in Jesus was all about. It was much more about me than it was about him. And I wonder if any of you can relate to me. I think many of us here have actually had points in our life where we've made a profession of faith. We've said the right things, but we've misunderstood what it meant. And maybe we've just gone ahead and done something so that one day we can go to heaven, have a pretty good, comfortable life. And then when we die, we know we're not going to hell. If that's where we're at, then we've actually misunderstood what Jesus says in his word. Now, don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that if you chose to make a profession or a confession in, in Jesus as a child that you're not saved. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is whether you're 5, 15, 25, 35, or 65, I believe that there are many of us who have misunderstood what our confession in Jesus is all about. There's actually a pervasive, this is pervasive in the Western church. This belief that Jesus saves us just so we can have a better life. We can almost add Jesus to our life and we do our best to make good decisions. We do our, he, he makes us comfortable. He comforts us. And whenever we're in trouble, we can call out to him. We do our best to go to church. And one day when we die, we know that we're not going to hell. And I want you to understand where this misunderstanding that's so pervasive in the American church comes from. It's a lie from the enemy. It's a lie from the enemy that he desperately wants us to believe because if we believe it, if we believe that Jesus saves us so we can have a good life and that we'll be comfortable and that we won't go to hell, then we'll never join Jesus on his mission. See, Jesus saves us to send us. The invitation to follow Jesus is actually the invitation to join Jesus on his mission. It's called following Jesus. And to follow Jesus means you go where Jesus is going. And Jesus is, is his church is an offensive mechanism that goes directly at the gates of hell and demolishes those gates, destroys those gates. The mission of God isn't defensive against the gates of hell, it's offensive. And the invitation to follow Jesus is to go where he's going. It's to join him on his mission. And obviously that's the last thing that Satan wants. And so he lies to us and he wants us to believe that we can just add Jesus to our life and not actually go continuously being saved to be sent, pursuing the lost and attacking the gates of hell along with Jesus. In fact, this isn't an, a new strategy that, this, that the enemy has used. This goes back all the way to the beginning of the church to the very first followers of Jesus. Let me show you what I mean. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 16 and we'll start reading in verse 13. Here's what it says. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. This is an unbelievable moment where here Jesus is with his disciples and Peter makes this unbelievable confession. 
that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, that he's the Messiah, the Holy One sent from God. And this is what the church is going to be based on. People making this confession that Jesus is the Christ, the one Lord God, the son of God. And through this, anyone who makes this confession, people are gonna be brought into the church, not the building, but made, the, made into the people of God. And so this is a huge moment in the New Testament, in, in the book of Matthew. This is how the church is going to be built on people making this confession. And this is incredibly significant because what, what Jesus says to Peter is, this wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood, but this was revealed to you spiritually by my Father who's in heaven. Only the Father can reveal this to people that Jesus is who he says he is, the Son of the living God, the Christ, the Holy One sent from him to save us. And so this is an unbelievable moment. And Peter makes this incredible confession and he's saying all the right things. But as we continue to read on, we're gonna actually see that he's not understanding, he's misunderstanding some of what it means as Jesus begins to lay out what, this, what his church is gonna look like. Look at what it says next in verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. I mean, what an unbelievable description of what the church of Jesus is going to be like this forward movement advancement against the gates of hell that the gates of hell will be powerless against, that this is the church that Jesus is going to, to be built upon, the confession that he alone is the Christ. And so when, when Peter makes this confession, he is so excited to now hear about this church that he thinks is gonna be built on him. See, there's something really important to understand here in the original language, is that the, the word for Peter, like the meaning of the name Peter sounds a whole lot like rock. In fact, just like the name for Matthew has a meaning, it's gift of God. No surprise, right? That's what you're thinking. Peter has a meaning too. And the meaning for the name Peter is actually rock. And so when Jesus says, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. Peter thinks that Jesus is talking about him. He thinks that he is the rock. Peter is misunderstanding what Jesus is saying. And it's easy for us to imagine why he would. He's saying, listen, I'm the rock. I've just made this unbelievable confession that Jesus is the Christ. Now my life is gonna be good. Evil isn't gonna be able to stand a chance against me. I am all that. I am the rock that Jesus is going to build his church on. But Peter was misunderstanding he wasn't the rock. He was actually looking at the rock, Jesus, the head of the church. You see, Peter was saying all the right things, but he was misunderstanding what it meant that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the Holy One of God. See, Peter's confession about Jesus was just like mine. It was a whole lot more about him than it was about Jesus. He thought that Jesus was gonna join him on Peter's mission rather than, Jesus, rather than Peter actually joining Jesus on his mission. Because the thing that Peter thought that Jesus was gonna deliver him from, 
was the tyranny of Rome. When Jesus wasn't coming to free him from the tyranny of Rome so that his life could be better, he was actually coming to free him from the tyranny of, his, of sin. And so as we hear and read Peter's confession, it seems from his boldness and from his confession that when Jesus actually lays out his plan for how the church is gonna be built and the things that must happen and how he's gonna destroy the gates of hell, you'd think that Peter would be all about it. But we're, it's gonna become even more crystal clear that, G, that Peter is saying all the right things, but he's misunderstanding the meaning. Look at how Jesus begins to lay out his plan, his offensive attack against the gates of hell in verse 21. Look what it says. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Right here in verse 21, Jesus is laying out his offensive strategy that is a full-on onslaught against the gates of hell. He, and what he's doing is he's explaining the gospel. The gospel, the good news that Jesus came to earth to live a perfect life and then he had to go and allow himself to be scourged, to be tortured, to suffer at the hands of sinners, taking our place, die, but then resurrect on the third day. Jesus is laying out this message of the gospel and this is the gospel that is going to render the gates of hell completely useless. This is what Jesus is explaining. And it had to happen this way. I mean, think about this for a second. You and I were all born into sin. No one had to teach us how to do it. We've always just been good at sinning. No one, my parents never sat me down and taught me how to throw a fit when I, didn't get my, when I didn't get my way. I've always been great at that. They didn't teach me how to lie, to get out of trouble. I've always been a very creative liar. And the same is true for you and for our kids. We're all born into sin. And so because God is perfectly good, he's perfectly holy, and sin is completely contrary to his character, he, can have, he cannot be in the presence of sin. Sin must be dealt with. Sin must be punished because he's a holy, perfect God. And so you and I, in a sense, we're born on our way to hell. We're born destined to, to receive the justice of a holy God. We deserve hell. And so in a sense, we're all born on the highway to hell. This is what our destiny is. But this is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus is pulling out all the stops to make sure in this offensive attack against hell that the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against. I want you to think about this for a second. Think about what the purpose of a gate is. The gate is not purposely to, you know, open up so that people can come into a kingdom. The purpose of a gate is to actually keep people out. It's a defensive strategy. A gate is defensive. It's not offensive is to keep people from getting out. Now think about this for a second. When Jesus went to the cross and he suffered and died and then he rose again on the third day, his life, his death, his burial and resurrection literally busted down the gates of hell so that everyone who is doomed to ultimately spend eternity there now is, can be set free by faith in Jesus by professing that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, he brings us into his church, his body. We make up the people of God. The gates of hell cannot stand against us in our faith in Jesus. 
this message, what Jesus is laying out, is his offensive attack against the gates of hell that will render them completely useless. But as we're gonna read on, we're gonna see that Peter actually wants nothing to do with God's offensive strategy. Look at what happens next in verse 22 through 23. It says, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I mean, we get this impression of Peter that he's this big, bad, bold guy and that he should be all about this offensive attack against the gates of hell. But he's not. Jesus has said something that isn't about what he's about. Jesus is saying he's gonna have to die. And Peter knows if Jesus dies, then he can't fulfill his mission, which is to, to take down Rome. And so Peter pulls Jesus aside and he rebukes him. And he says, this will never happen to you. He has the audacity to tell Jesus what should and shouldn't happen. Because he was saying the right words, but he had misunderstood the meaning that Jesus being the Christ meant that Jesus was Lord and he wasn't. And do you hear what Jesus says to him? He says, get behind me, Satan. Now, Jesus wasn't being mean to Peter. What he was doing is he actually rebuking the spirit that is behind Peter. What he's telling Peter is, Peter, you're not listening to God. You're listening to Satan. So get behind me, Satan. And then he says to Peter that you're a hindrance to me. So Peter was over here thinking he's the rock that Jesus is gonna build his church on. And now Jesus is saying, no, Peter, you're a hindrance to the church. You're actually getting in the way of my offensive attack against the gates of hell. You're a hindrance to me because you don't have in things, you don't have in mind the things of God, but you have in mind the things of man. You're missing it, Peter. You've been saying the right things, but you've misunderstood their meaning. And I think it's really easy for us to kind of pick on Peter. You know, bless his heart, he's kind of always sticking his, his foot in his mouth. He's always doing that. It's easy for us to pick on Peter. But if we just stop and be honest for a second, man, we're a lot like Peter. We say all the right things, but we misunderstand their meaning. I mean, if we're honest, we often profess Jesus with our mouth, but very often want nothing to do with his offensive attack against hell. We live protective against it. It's like, we don't want the devil to advance on us. The last thing we're thinking about is actually following Jesus on his mission, joining him and going straight into the darkness. I mean, we, like when it comes to our neighborhoods, if you're anything like me, probably often what you're thinking about before you go to bed is I just wanna watch a show or watch the ball game, kind of drift off into la la land and then go to sleep. You're not thinking about, approaching the throne of grace and asking God to move powerfully in your neighborhood so that people that are lost around you can come to know Jesus. When we understand that there are people all around us in our neighborhood and at work that are lost and they are on their way to hell, but based on the way that we act, sometimes it just seems like we don't care. I mean, as I was preparing for this message, I had to, like, I was convicted by the spirit of God and having to deal with this question how often does, this, does the Spirit of God and Jesus have to rebuke me 
because I have in mind the things of man and not the things of God. I'm not seeking all the time that my neighbors would come to Jesus, asking God to move on their behalf to draw them to faith in Jesus. And if that's not the case, then the last thing we're thinking about, if we're not praying for them, the last thing we're thinking about is pursuing them with all of our heart so that God can open up an opportunity for us to share the gospel with them. Listen, guys, Jesus didn't save us so that we wouldn't go to hell. He didn't save us so that we could be comfortable. He saved us to send us. It's not just a nice thing that Jason says or a campus pastor says at the end of a message, Fielder Church, you're sent. It's literally the reason why Jesus saved us so that we would join him on his mission and that we would go with him attacking the gates of hell and doing whatever we could to pursue lost people so that they don't have to be destined for destruction, but they can come to the understanding that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and they can be brought into the people of God and be a part of his church. Jesus saves us to send us and the invitation to follow Jesus is to join him on his mission. And where he is going is an, like in following Jesus is going where he's going and where he's going is an all out offensive against the gates of hell. And so if we're following Jesus, that means we join him because it's through his church that Jesus is going to accomplish his mission. The gates of hell are useless when we ask God to move and we go with him as he moves. I love the way the 19th century missionary put it. This is how he says it. His name is C.T. Studd. And listen to what C.T. Studd said. He said, some want to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. He says, some people want to just live close to a building, but I want to run a rescue shop right next to hell so that I can pursue people, go where Jesus is going and, and see them put their faith in Jesus and be set free from the tyranny and the power of hell is defeated in their life. Listen, I know that this sounds scary. It almost sounds radical. And I want you to know it is scary. It is radical. But that's when we're thinking in accordance to the things of man. But when we set our mind on the gospel and we set on our, our mind on the things of God, then all of a sudden we are able to understand that my purpose in life is to leverage everything that I have to put, to, to leverage every part of my life for the advancement of Jesus's mission. That's where life is at until I let go and thinking that life is about me. And when I make Jesus the Lord of my life and I go after him, that is where life is found. And there's no greater joy in the world than seeing people turn from death to life. Jesus saved us to join him in that, to join him on his mission. He saved us for so much more than just not going to hell when we die. He saved us for so much more than just being comfortable and trying to be good. He saved us to experience life to the full, going with him where he's going. Now, listen, I know some of you are like, well, man, Matt, I'm really glad that you decided to just encourage me for the last 20 minutes and just beat me up making me doubt everything that I've ever believed and in, in, in convincing me that I've misunderstood what it means to follow Jesus. Listen, I, would you just tell me what it means to follow Jesus? Well, actually, I don't wanna beat you up, but I do want us to come to understand what our profession in Jesus is really about. And fortunately for me, I don't have to 
because Jesus explains it in his word. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it means to follow him, to become his. This is what it means to be saved. Look at what Jesus says in verse 24 through 25. He explains it to his disciples. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Right out of the bat, Jesus says, this is what it takes to follow me. If you're gonna come after me, let me explain totally what it means to be my follower. The first thing you gotta do is you gotta deny yourself. Now, the reason why Jesus says this is because he's wanting to make sure that we understand who he is. You and I are born as if life is about us. And if Jesus is the Christ, that means that Jesus is Lord and Lord's rule all. And so what Jesus is wanting to make sure that we understand that saying, Jesus, you're the Lord of my life. Jesus, you are the Christ and I'm gonna follow you. That means that I can no longer live for myself. See, the word deny means to reject or say no. And so what Jesus is saying is, if you're gonna follow me, the first thing you gotta do is you gotta reject and say no to the old king of your life, which was you. There's no such thing as a two king kingdom. I am the Lord and that means that I rule all. And so if you're gonna come after me, the very first thing you gotta do is you gotta reject the lordship of yourself. You're not coming to me for you. You're coming to me for me. That's what Jesus wants us to understand. But then what's the second thing he says? He says, you gotta deny yourself. And then he says, you gotta pick up your cross and then follow me. And listen, we tend to think of the cross as this beautiful thing because of what Jesus did on it. But to Jesus's listeners right here, the, the cross represented the most heinous form of execution that had ever been created. It wasn't just cutting someone's, off, cutting someone's head off or, or hanging someone. It was the most heinous form of capital punishment that had ever been created that Rome had, had invented that we're not just going to put you to death. We're gonna literally erect you on two beams of wood until you bleed out or until you suffocate. They were literally torturing people to death, flexing their muscles, showing how strong and how great their tyranny was over the people that they had, had enslaved. The cross represented death. And so every single person here clearly heard Jesus say, not only do you gotta reject yourself and deny yourself, but you gotta die to yourself. You gotta put that old king to death because your life is not about you. You know, a lot of times we think coming to Jesus is about giving up our wrongs, but coming to Jesus is actually giving up our rights. How many rights does a dead person have? They don't have any rights. So Jesus is saying, you're coming to me. I'm the Lord, I rule all. You gotta deny yourself and you gotta die to yourself. And then you can follow me. And just to make sure that he's ultimately clear, he says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. That person who wants to be in control, that person who wants to say, I'll say the right prayers. I'll do my best to be good. I'll go to church when I can. I'll, I'll tip Jesus every once in a while. I'll even, I'll even give online. I'll even text Fielder to 94253 so I can give through PushPay. I'll do my best, but ultimately I still wanna be in control of my life. Jesus says, you'll lose it. But whoever loses their life, meaning gives up control of their life to me, for my sake and for the gospel, that person will save it. The person who goes, it's not my life anymore. I'm not gonna do it my way. Jesus, my life is yours and I am going to join you on your mission because you said deny, die, and then follow me. 
And to follow you means I'm gonna leverage every part of my life for your sake and not for mine. I'm gonna go where you're going. I'm gonna join you on your mission and I'm gonna be, understand that I was saved to be sent to a lost and dying world on a complete offensive attack against the gates of hell. That's what we're saved for. And when we do that, when we understand that we need to deny ourselves and die to ourselves and then join Jesus on his mission, everything changes. We actually see this in Peter's life. So I want you to turn to Acts chapter four. And while you're turning there, let me just fill you in really quickly on what's happened in Peter's life. So Jesus has, has, has died, he was crucified, and then he rose again. And Peter had seen a resurrected Lord. Peter had been restored to Jesus after he denied him three times. And then Jesus told Peter, along with his disciples, to as right before he ascended into heaven, he said, wait in Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Spirit. And when you receive the Holy Spirit, he'll come on you in power. And then you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so that's what happens. He has seen a resurrected Lord. He receives the Holy Spirit. And now he is going around everywhere preaching and people are coming to faith. And what happens in Acts chapter three is there's actually a, a man who's been lame since birth and Peter and John, you know, heal this man. But what happens is as people have seen this man healed, then Peter preaches the gospel and thousands are added to their number. Thousands of people come to faith. And then what happens is the scribes and the Pharisees and Caiaphas, the high priest, the very same people that put Jesus to death, hear about it. And they approach Peter and they bring Peter and John in. They begin to question them. And that's where we're going to take up the scripture in verse five of Acts chapter four. Look at what it says. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. But in order that they may spread it no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more in, to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them. Listen to this. This is unbelievable. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because the people 
for all were praising God for all that had happened. I mean, isn't, is this the same Peter? Like, is this the same Peter that pulled Jesus aside and rebuked him? Is this the same Peter that thought that he was the rock? Is this the same Peter that denied Jesus three times in front of the very people that he's talking to now? This is the same Peter. But you know what changed? What changed was he finally understood what it meant when he said, Jesus is the Christ. It meant that Jesus is Lord and that he is not. And it means that he needed to deny himself and die to himself and put his agenda, his mission to bed and leverage every part of his life for the advancement of King Jesus. And he joined him on his mission. And instead of being this coward who is rebuking Jesus and wanting to, you know, have the tyranny of Rome disrupted, now he is standing before the very same people that put Jesus to death and he knows can put him to death and one day would, preaching the gospel boldly, full of the Holy Spirit and people are coming to faith. He had joined Jesus on an onslaught against the gates of hell. And he is saying, Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected. He is the cornerstone. And against him, he is the cornerstone of the church. And against him, the gates of hell have no chance. Listen, I was 12 years old when Jesus got a hold of me. I'll never forget being uh, at a camp the summer before my seventh grade year and sitting on a playground at dusk at twilight all by myself. And God got a hold of my heart. And in that moment, I remember being overwhelmed by my sin. But in that same moment, I remember being overwhelmed by the truth that Jesus was who he said he was. And I remember looking up to heaven and saying, Jesus, I know who you are. You are God and I will follow you for the rest of my life. If my parents walk away from you, if my parents walk away from me or walk away from each other, I'm going to follow you for the rest of my life. That's the moment that I was changed. That's the moment I denied myself and died to myself. That's the moment I filled the, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's the moment that for the first time, my heart was broken for the lost people around me. Not because my dad was the director of evangelism and that's what we were supposed to do, but because Jesus had invited me to join him on his mission. This is the first time I believed the gospel. And that's when I was saved. And when that happens, it changes everything. Listen, I believe that that needs to happen for some of you. I had, I had made a profession when I was young, but I misunderstood. I was saying the right words, just like Peter saying the right things, but misunderstanding their meaning. And I believe that some of you are listening right now and you need to come to the place of understanding what it means to follow Jesus. The Spirit of God is convicting you right now that there's never been a time in your life where you've denied yourself and died yourself and chosen to follow Jesus. And if the Spirit of God is convincing you right now that life can only be found in Jesus, if he's convincing you right now that you're a sinner, but Jesus is enough for you and he paid for your sin by going to the cross in your place, put your faith in the gospel. Put your faith in Jesus. And if you're ready to do that, Denying yourself and dying to yourself, making Jesus the Lord of your life. I just want you to text next step to 94253 and a pastor will reach out to you and walk you through what it means to put your faith in Jesus. But listen, there are some of you that you've been going to church for a long time and maybe even at a different time in your life, you made a profession in Jesus, but you are being convinced right now, not by me, by the spirit of God, because the father is truly the only one who convinced you that you need to deny yourself and die to yourself. 
I can't convince you of that. Only the father can reveal that. Just like you revealed it to Peter that Jesus was the Christ. And right now, even though you've gone to church for a long time and at one point you said the right things, but now you're understanding, the father's convincing you that you misunderstood their meaning. You need to put your faith in Jesus right now. You need to deny yourself and die to yourself. And even though you've been going to church most of your life, if you are ready to put your faith in Jesus and actually enter into the church, the people of God, by confessing that Jesus is the Christ, that he's Lord of your life and that you're gonna join him on his mission, then in the same way, I want you to text next step to 94253 and a pastor will reach out to you and walk with you as you place your faith in Jesus and they will rejoice with you that you're coming into the body of Christ as a follower of Jesus. Listen, for those of you though that, that are at home and you're believers in Jesus and you're watching this, the spirit of God has been convicting you that yes, you know that you understood that Jesus was the Christ, but recently you haven't been joining him on his mission. I want you to remember what you were saved for. And the best way for us to remember how we were saved is by taking the Lord's Supper. And so we're gonna prepare our hearts to take to the Lord's Supper, but child of God, as we prepare, as we sing this next song that Jesus is forever glorified and that because he is on his throne, because he is the resurrected king, that the power of hell is completely defeated. I want you to remember what you were saved for, that you were, that you were saved to be sent and that you're gonna press in and you're gonna begin to pray for your neighbors. You're gonna begin to pursue your neighbors so that they can come to know Jesus. You're gonna join Jesus on his mission. And I want you to know there's actually two very tangible ways that you can step into that. You know, we have a vision goal that, in the, that we're gonna pray for 30,000 unbelievers by name in the year 2026. That, every, that, that in that year, 30,000 people, people will be prayed for by name. That's a goal of ours. It's important. You know why? Because Jesus said in verse, in verse 19 that he's given us the keys to heaven and that whatever we bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Well, it's time for the people of God to join Jesus on his mission and begin to pray for the lost people around us, our neighbors, so that one day what we, what we bound on earth, that they would be bound up in heaven, that their names would be written in the Lamb's book of life and they would move from lost to save. They would go from death to life instead of destined to hell, destined for citizenship and eternal life with Jesus in heaven. And so what I wanna tell you to do is there's actually a very easy way that you can step into this. There's something called Bless Every Home. It's an app that you can download that has all the information of your neighbors so that you can begin to pray for them every day. So I encourage you, download this app and begin to pray for your neighbors every day that they would be drawn to faith in Jesus. But as we pray for our, our neighbors, it doesn't stop there. God wants us to move towards them in love. And so there's something, an opportunity for you to do this right now. This Tuesday, October 5th is, is National Night Out where people are gonna be coming out and gathering together. And this is an unbelievable opportunity for you. Yes, today, begin praying for your neighbors, but then move towards them, know them, get to know them, build relationships with them so that you can share the gospel with them so that one day they can place their faith and hope in Jesus. Listen, church, as we sing this song and prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper, let's remember that every time we pray for our neighbors, that they would come to faith, every time that we share the gospel with a neighbor, that gates of hell are shaking and chains are being loosened and a way is being made for more and more people to become part of his body, the church, the church that are, the gates of hell stand no chance against. 
So let's prepare our hearts to not just sing this song, but to actually step into joining Jesus on his mission. Let's respond as we sing and prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper.